On this prequel episode, we've got our fan poll follow-up for Dune. We're learning about YA romance and previewing Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's the prequel to Nick and Nora's Infinite, Playli- Infinite Playlist, which means it's the sequel to our Dune episode, our epic three-and-a-half-hour-long Dune episode, mm-hmm. which was something else. We uh, would like to once again thank Aaron for coming along on that arduous journey. <laughs> I say arduous. It was a great time. Yeah, it was fun. That... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was trying to come up with another word for long and just blanking on all is words because my brain is fried. Is there a Dune-specific word for a journey? I mean, it would be probably a, uh, a Hajj, maybe, because yeah. there's lots of Islamic mm-hmm. um, allusions in, in lots of the stuff, and the Hajj, from my memory, is the like the uh, pilgrimage. Uh, okay, I feel like that works. Pilgrimage, Hajj, maybe, yeah. Anyway, our Dune pilgrimage. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we have our fan follow up to that. We have uh, we're gonna find out what everybody thought of the episode, what they thought of uh, 2021 Dune and the book. But before we get to that, we're gonna do what we always do and give a quick shout out to all of our new and Academy Award winning patrons. We have one new patron this week at the two dollar Newberry Award winning level, and that is Gary French. Thank you, Gary, for joining on at two dollars, getting early access. Uh, and ad-free, which has still not been an issue. <laughs> and also, at the $2 level, you also get um, upcoming announcements. Oh, yeah, and that's actually a really cool. Month, that's yeah. maybe the best part of the uh, yeah. the $2 level is you get the... the at, at the end of every month, I post on our Patreon feed what books and movies we'll be covering for the next month. And that includes our main episodes as well as uh, our monthly patreon bonus episode yeah so it gives you a lot more time to if you want to read along Mm -hmm. gives you a lot more time to kind of get ahead on that and read and know what we're doing for bonus episodes and all that good stuff so yeah i think that's that's maybe your best value at the two dollar level we appreciate you for signing on at that level let's now thank our academy award winners our 15 dollar and up patrons and they are paul Kat Insminger, Ben Wilcox, Jeff Niederhofer, Ian from Wine Country, Ready for Spooky Season, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Youngs, Gratch, Just Gratch, Shelby Says, More Sci-Fi Please, V. Frank, and Alina Starkov. We thank you all so very much for supporting us every month at the $15 and up level. You are all truly Academy Award winners. Shelby wants more sci-fi, Katie. She's really pushing against your general interests and into mine. <laughs> Not Sometimes against. I just want to do stuff that I'm interested in. <laughs> yes. And generally... Uh, we fall. That's one where one place where we do fall into some traditional gender <laughs> roles. Yeah, is that I true. I tend to be into sci-fi and you tend not to be quite as much. Not that you dislike it, but no, just I don't not, dislike yeah. it. It's just not something that I seek out on my own. Yes, exactly. Uh, but we uh, we will have more sci-fi coming up before too long. I am sure, Shelby. So don't you fret about that. All right, we now have our fan poll reaction to the most recent sci-fi property we covered, Dune. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. 
We had uh, not like a high number of people giving feedback this time, but we had a lot of long responses. That doesn't that doesn't surprise me. Responses. We got the people who are out here ready to talk about Dune. I did edit some of them down, <laughs> um, but we yeah we got we got some good response. So jumping right in on Patreon, we had three votes for the book and three for the movie. So we had a, a dead heat tie on Patreon. New conglomerate Vinny said, I choose the movie, but for a very selfish reason. I want the movies to do well enough to get to God Emperor of Dune, so everyone that hasn't read it or read a long time ago gets to experience that terrible book on screen. God Emperor is equal parts like Dune weird and weird sex stuff. Also, I want to see how the worm man would look on screen. Side note, Thopter is also a semi-common mtg one out of one flying token <laughs> uh magic the, the magic gathering the one gathering. one flying token and, and one one would be the attack and defense oh, i think okay. like stats basically so there are thopters in <clears throat> yeah. magic the, I, you know what i don't thopter is a it. fairly common um like and, and maybe it comes from doing that may be where the magic the gathering got it from i don't know i mean i it would, would i mean because magic the gathering came around after yeah. dune for sure so that may be where it came from but it's a fairly common uh like steampunky type of, mm. you know, that kind of uh, like technology mm-hmm. in the same way that like I'm trying to think of another similar thing and now I'm blanking. But yeah, it, it, it's that it's that kind of thing that like in steampunk uh, or like alt, alt like a hot sci-fi kind of like hot air. Yeah, but <laughs> this is the other steampunk vehicle. Yeah, that and I, know. They, I mean we saw them in Dune. They weren't <laughs> hot air balloons, but we, or probably. But or we did like see a, like not, balloons not a hot air balloon, like a a zeppelin. Yes, kind of like a zeppelin or something like that, where they're very popular in those in fantasy sci-fi yeah, type of gotcha. genres like steampunk. I gotcha. Ian from Wine Country said, "Let me first state." They're just whimsical helicopters. Sorry. Yeah, I guess they are whimsical. I guess they are. You're right. Sorry. Ian from Wine Country said, let me first state that I have a love-hate relationship with Dune in general. It's so complex in its world building and narrative layers that it's easy to see why it's one of the most drawn from sources in all of literature, let alone sci-fi. Herbert managed to stack the hero's journey on top of political intrigue, philosophical musings on the nature of humanity, Oedipal issues, economics, and how they play out in an interstellar feudal society, religion, technology, all that while also adding in a humanization of the other by modeling the Fremen after a culture that was considered exotic at the time. The problem is, it's boring as shit. (laughs) Reading Dune for the first time felt like homework I had assigned myself. Complexity does not equal compelling storytelling. It may be my modern taste and the pace of storytelling, though I have read and enjoyed much of the sci-fi of the time, as well as truly long epics like Wheel of Time or the Sword of Truth series. But it just felt more like reading a made-up history lesson than an exciting narrative work. I love the book Dune because as a sci-fi fan, I'm legally required All to. All right, I'm going to jump in here before okay, I get to jump the end in. I only agree in so much as like the first couple chapters. It I and I, now to be fair, I am not done with the book. Yes. But the book the part of the book that again. it could you get boring know. again, but the part of the book that the this first movie covers apart from the first 
handful of chapters discounting the Gamjabar chapter, which is fantastic. But like the of the first five chapters, four of them, I can see finding a little boring. Mm-hmm. I myself did to some extent, but I knew we were getting somewhere. But after that, the rest of this first part of the book is a nonstop like it, it Well, I mean, from the moment from the dinner scene on uh-huh. the dinner party scene on the dinner party scenes, riveting, amazing stuff that, like I said, wish had been in the movie. And then right after that, we get the invasion and the exile of Jessica and Paul. And from there on, it's like a nonstop action adventure film. Like the, the book is like nonstop action adventure. Like they're they're running for their lives. They're running into people. Like there's nothing boring about it from the dinner scene on, in my opinion. And so I disagree in that regard. Now, I like I said, as we mentioned, I am not done with the book. It could get boring again. So I will take that. <laughs> Under consideration. Take it into advisement. Take that under advisement. But <laughs> apart from the first couple chapters, which are not that long, you know, the first 30 pages or whatever, I found it incredibly not boring. That, that right. seems a very strange critique to me. Push, pushing back against Ian from So I'm going to have to push back a little bit against one of our $15 <laughs> patrons. But like I said, all of my uh, caveats under advisement there of not having finished yet and, mm-hmm. and admitting that the first couple chapters, there is some boring stuff in there. All right, Ian from Wine Country also said, The movie, on the other hand, is much more accessible. True to the book, as much as is reasonable in a visual medium, it brings all the complexity of the narrative to a package that can be easily consumed by your average Real Housewives of Too Much Money fan. It has the deep cuts for book fans and the gorgeous visual, including a mostly nude Oscar Isaac, for everyone. That is for everyone. That's fair. It updated the language just enough to make it modern, uh, for example, changing Paul's worries about an an interstellar jihad into a less culturally weighted holy war, while still leaving the feeling of a strange hidden culture intact. Of course, that still leaves the problem of of the white savior narrative on the surface, but we'll see how they deal with that in two years or so. Personally, I would still take the book because I'm generally a hard sci-fi fan, but I voted for the movie because it's a great blend of fan service and intro to sci-fi for people who otherwise wouldn't get into it. I think I mostly agree with a lot of, well, generally, not so much maybe with all of the the specifics, but the general swath of that second part there. Um I do think it's a very uh, that Denny Villeneuve's version is much more accessible than the yeah, book is, and that seems to be a common refrain throughout yeah. this feedback. That being said, I have still heard that people tend to find the movie a little boring and a little mm. arduous. Not 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 a lot of people. It's very popular. It's done very well and is very well reviewed by critics and audiences alike. But the most common complaint I have heard is from people saying that they found it boring or just not interesting or what, you know, just like, I mean, to, like just kind of paced slowly and like, yeah, there is paced in a, way a little slowly. And I think maybe some people don't quite know what to do with it because it is like all set up. Yeah. Like we got to the end of the movie and I was like, Oh, it's over. Yeah. I mean, I I get the, I understand that that critique from people or people saying that, but at the same time, it's like, well, sure, but I mean, for me, in the I same way that any other me, movie in the first part even, of a series is set it's up, it's not like, even a critique for me. Yes, it's, yeah. it's just an observation, right? But I think that maybe people don't quite know 
like how to parse that. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Like the critiques I've seen, or not critiques, but like the the stuff I've seen on the internet from that are the most negative from people is just like people talking about how like you know some like their friend fell asleep in the theater or whatever, like watching the movie because they just thought it was boring or whatever, and and that and to me that rings kind of true to the book in the same way whereas if i think there's just for some people it's just not going to work mm-hmm. like it's just not like i think it, it it captures the book in that regard where the first 30 minutes equating to the first you know five chapters or whatever are kind of plotting at times and mm-hmm. we're just doing a lot of character introduction and setup which m- most move that's how most movies work but i do understand how it you know I don't know. I, I uh, like I said. Overall, I agree with with Ian's comments here about making it more digestible, um, and doing a good job of blending like fan service and sort of uh, being a more introductory level of of sci fi for people. I, I agree with all that. I, I I think it's I think it's an incredibly successful movie. I just um, I, I don't have as many critiques of the book as Ian does. So. <laughs> That's why, that's why my uh, my final score, for my final verdict, lands the other direction. All right, over on Facebook. Oh wait, sorry, I say the other direction. They did. He, Ian did pick no, the book. No, he voted for the movie. He said personally, personally I would still I would take, take the, the book, book, but I voted oh, for the movie. Oh, sorry, I didn't. If you I continue read reading time. that sentence, <sighs> it's been a long week. All right, all right, leave me alone. So over on Facebook, we had two votes for the movie, zero for the book. Ian. This is a different uh, Ian? Yes, this is okay. a different Ian. Not to be confused with Ian from Wine Country. Ian said, much like Aaron, I've got three versions of this in my head. Lynch, miniseries, and Villeneuve. The book is another one I've been meaning to read. We'll have to borrow my better half's copy. I must be one of the few to like Lynch's version, but I was also very young when I started to watch it. I love learning new things like how old man is another term for... Shahalud, Shahalud. Yeah, I was very close. Roughly, I mean, I'm not even <laughs> sure that I'm right. I'm just that's what I think it is. <laughs> really brings new meaning to Paul's line at the harvester. Herbert took a tale as old as time and took it up a notch. It might be an oversimplification, but it's Shakespeare's Hamlet in space. Took old concepts like the Landsrod and made it work in this science fiction setting. The new film is excellent and paced very well. The franchise is one of the few things my father and I bonded over, and I know he would have liked this version had he not passed. I still tear up listening to Toto's scoring of Lynch's. Yeah, Toto uh, did the Lynch, uh, the score I for Lynch's I did not realize movie, that. Yeah. I'll leave you with a bit of humor. The badly explained version of this is son-in-law, Leto, not getting in law along with his father-in-law, the Baron. Spoilers. Well, we discussed, we, have, we discussed that, that, so there. it's not really yeah, a spoiler really for me spoiler. anymore. Also, yeah, Lido that is kind of a badly explained. Yeah, it is his father. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fun. It is. I mean, that's true. It's a fun. Yeah. Badly explained. <laughs> <laughs> On Twitter, we had four votes for the book, three for the movie, and four voters who could not decide. Shelby Suderman said, "I liked the book. I liked the movie." Like we did with Mockingjay, I'm going to wait until part two is out before I decide which one I prefer. I want to revisit the book closer to its release. And Andy Best agreed, (laughs) um, saying, I guess we have to wait for part two to really know, but it's a rare case where both fulfill their respective forms with a comparable level of artistry. I would agree. 
I would agree with both of those sen- sentiments in general. I still felt comfortable voting just because the book hit me in the way that it did. Mm-hmm. But I do agree that I don't think it's in that, it, this is one of those instances where the film does everything that you would want the film version to do. And the book does everything that you would want the book version yeah. to do. And they are both perfect. I, I say perfect. They're not perfect, but they're both relatively appro- asymptotically approaching perfect in the way that both of those pieces of media, you would want them to, mm-hmm. um, and so, yeah, in that regard, I, I completely agree that it's 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 a it's a coin flip. It's just that reading Dune for the first time was so fascinating and just astonishing to me that it pushed me over the edge to vote for the book. On Instagram, we had two votes for the book and four for the movie. The Leap 77 said, while the movie is fine and I do have some movie centric stuff to say about it. The book will always be better when it comes to a property like Dune. Regardless of Denis Villeneuve's love and vision for the project, ultimately a soulless movie executive is going to force their hand and prompt changes whether he agrees with them or not. I'm glad more people are getting into the story, but I also hope they take the time to actually go deep into this world because the modern media is going to twist everything within the book and film and possibly even drive people away. I doubt anyone can truly adapt the story without the financial side getting in the way, but at least this movie is arguably the closest. Hmm. Interesting. I will say that, while I appreciate your opinion, I don't know that I felt the hand of the studio anywhere in this movie. I didn't feel, I mean, I'm sure that there were calls made by the studio. Yes, there always is, but I didn't feel it. It didn't feel to me like it like there was no moment where I was like, oh, oh that well, was that's a studio clearly, note. yeah, like, oh, yeah, that the which was something looking, we often talk yes, about. Yes, we talk on about it show. all the time, and I never, and especially having read the book and knowing, you know, what they're adapting from, mm-hmm. um, would would make it even easier to notice that kind of yes. thing, like, oh, this moment that wasn't in the, yeah, in the, like, short of the, the the bumping up the action scenes, but even that doesn't feel as much like a studio notice. It just a thing that makes logical sense, right? Because we can leave the perspective of Paul and our main characters a little bit more. Uh, it makes more sense to sort of pat out those battle scenes a little bit and 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 maybe you know you could argue that the hand of the studio is there in cutting a scene like because it was filmed as we discussed the my favorite scene the dinner party scene mm-hmm. was filmed at least to some extent so you you could argue that the, the hand you we potentially saw the hand of the studio there being like this is boring it doesn't mm-hmm. do anything it's let's get to the the big you know action beat so i, I guess I, I guess i understand that but but overall apart from some of those cuts yeah. Like I said, like that the the dinner party scene. To me, I never felt like this wasn't Denny Villeneuve's vision. This this hundred percent. Having seen his other films, um, oh, it definitely felt it felt it felt like a Denny Villeneuve, it felt film. Like a Denis Villeneuve f- film, and it felt like his vision. And if apart from cutting a, a scene here or there, probably for time as much mm-hmm. as anything, um, didn't feel to me like something that the studio had meddled in. Yeah. unnecessarily but well, uh if you want to chime in again yeah the leap 77 um i would be interested to know if there were like yeah. specific things that you i was felt gonna like, say oh that was a studio call that was what i was specifically wanted to know is if there was something that you felt 
And not to say that you did, because you still going on to say this movie's still very good and it's as close yeah. as we can get. But I would be really interested to, because you kind of just said it broadly, I would be very interested to hear what your, if you had specific examples, mm-hmm. like this feels like where the studio was meddling. Uh, and maybe it is just as simple as they cut the dinner party scene, which I'm on your side then, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in, in regards to like media, I will say, I have seen some pretty bad takes on this movie. Oh, yeah. So many bad takes. I've seen some pretty uh, surface level. So many bad takes. You didn't bother to think about it, did you? Takes. Oh, my God. I don't even. Yep. Don't even get me started. It's Aaron. Aaron tweeted one of the retweeted one of the the best ones. And uh, to be fair, I only read the headline. And I know that that's a recipe for disaster (laughs) because. People writing the articles don't get to choose their headlines 99% of the time. But I did see one that was, you know, that one that was going around that was something like where Dune is proof that we're like overanalyzing sci fi or media yeah. or something like that. Like, do you like, know what Dune is? Yeah, like, like Dune is an example of how we're just like, we can't just let movies be movies or whatever that everybody saw that article, I'm sure, that listens to this podcast at least. And I just, I, Again, without having read the article, which maybe is much more reasonable than the headline is. Mm -hmm. Wow. (laughs) Just astonishing (laughs) stuff. Really solid, astonishing stuff. Uh, Our our other comment on Instagram was from Dakota Lustig, who said, I just finished the book. It's objectively bad. Uh, I just finished (laughs) assessing you and you're objectively bad. The end. (laughs) I'm kidding, obviously, but it's I'm not I'm honestly kind of not kidding because the the fact that you feel the confidence to say that (laughs) a piece of media is objectively bad. okay, I don't know. Reassess how you assess media. (laughs) There are very few things that (laughs) the fact that you could read Dune and think that it is objectively bad, which is already a very high bar to try to assess any piece of media by claiming an objective viewpoint on its value or merit uh all of our opinions on media are subjective mm-hmm. um and I, that being said there are things that i might qualify as like objectively bad like, i would qualify christmas with the cranks i as literally literally bad. was about to say <laughs> christmas with the cranks is something that i would probably qualify as objectively bad that being said, I, I I deep down I know it's not like it's uh, like it, I like it it's not I, I deep down I'm like nah it's still like it's as close to objectively bad as something may get mm. but I I still don't know if I'd have the confidence to call it objectively bad and the fact that you could think you could call Dune the novel objectively bad is fascinating to me because even if you don't like it which I can totally understand and appreciate not liking the novel Dune, the amount of work and, and, and world building and, and lore building that went into it is so impressive and so mind blowing to levy the simple criticism of objectively bad against it is astonishing to me, but I appreciate your input and your feedback. I just disagree. Uh, And we have a first in our uh, listener follow-up polls. We got feedback on Goodreads. Hey! (laughs) And 
I usually don't check Goodreads because we get very little engagement on there. Um, but I was sitting at the computer and I had put all this in and I was like, I'll see what's going on on Goodreads. Why not? I'm bored. And lo and behold, <laughs> we had a comment. I did shorten this one quite a bit. It was a very long comment. Yeah. But it was very fascinating. So if you are interested, um, I would recommend going over to our Goodreads page and taking a look at what this listener had to say. So our comment was from Miko. Miko. Who said, While I find ranking books to be impossible with any kind of consistency, Dune would be very, very close to the top of my list of favorites. And if the metric for favorite is how many times I have reread a book, Dune would be the clear winner. I found myself agreeing with Brian's final assessment almost entirely. The movie is great, but the book is a masterpiece that has a special place in my heart. I have even used the litany against fear in real life against anxiety. I will say one vote. for One me. vote for the book. OK, I want to add that I do think that the litany against fear is one of the pieces of because this is something I thought about and I actually wanted to mention and talk about in the episode and I forgot somehow um it is one of the pieces uh, uh lines you know passages things from a piece of media that i have found the single most like useful mm. i feel like it potentially has the most um applicable use in your day-to-day -day life of maybe anything that i've i've read in a long time in a piece of literature of it, I agree in the sense that I do think that the, the 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 act of repeating the litany of fear and really like focusing on the words is and, and it sounds sort of cheesy and like I don't know um, hyperbolic, but it does I think it is a leg an incredibly distilled um, couple of sentences that do a really good job of helping you recenter yourself and focus your mind in a way that I found really surprising that I was not expecting to get that piece of like, like a, a legitimate piece of like self-improvement philosophy mm. out of a book. Not I, obviously there's all kinds of things that we get from books all the time, but such a, a boiled down simple thing that I was just like this, I can totally see. And I have honestly, since I read it, I had a very um, stressful and 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 chaotic couple of weeks since we've read this book uh, with work and whatnot. And the litany against fear, even just elements of it, are in I find very like centering and calming in a way that I was not expecting. Mm -hmm. It was very fascinating to me, and so I would one hundred percent agree with that. Uh, Miko also said there are three things that I especially love about the book. One, the quotes at the start of every chapter, a nice form of prescience for the reader, uh, even hinting at characters who do not appear for hundreds of pages. Two, the heavy use of third-person omniscient narrator, narrator. We get to peek at almost every primary and secondary character's thoughts at some point. That is really fascinating. I, I, I meant to mention that more. I did talk about, like, you know the fact that we're in people's heads and hear people's thoughts, but it's not just Paul and Jessica and the Duke. It's 
you know, still got it's like every mm-hmm. character we jump around in people different people's heads throughout chapters, and I found that incredibly interesting. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm on that. And three, revealing Doctor Yue as the traitor right away to the reader, at least. Yeah, I agree. That was also really uh, fun and interesting. You get a lot of um, what's the uh, dramatic irony? Yeah, it's dramatic yeah. irony. Uh, because we find out very early. Yeah, uh, so you know, but the other characters don't know. We, they're in one of the early, uh, the little, uh, the the quotes at the start of every chapter. One of them refers to Yue as like Yue the betrayer, mm-hmm. and and like explains that he is the person who betrayed House Atreides. And this is like before we almost like right at the beginning of us even knowing there's like this, you know, uh, there's a traitor in the ranks. Yeah, we find out like immediately that it's Yue. And we go for chapters and chapters of them all trying to figure out who it is and, like, distrusting different people and blah, blah, blah. And we know the whole time. And I I, I agree. I thought that was very compelling. The book has plans within plans within plans. The movie barely has plans. But I really cannot fault Villeneuve for that. The book is just that dense, and you have to adapt the material for the big screen. You cannot over-explain everything. I almost disagree. Sorry, I, I, I'm not gonna. I know we're almost done. I, I almost disagreed at first, but I don't. I actually do agree that the the book does. We and we talked about it in the episode. It streamlines so much of the political mm-hmm. machinations and the traitor plotline and all that sort of stuff. That that all sort of does get streamlined down into a very digestible single, um, sort of narrative that doesn't have quite as many tendrils as the book has. Mm-hmm. So I, I I was like I said I found myself disagreeing because it felt like a slight to the movie in a way that I wasn't on board with. But I I ultimately think I do agree. There are so many themes in Dune. It's about ecology, sustainability, fate and free will, power and religion. It's about the United States and oil. It's a warning against charismatic leaders, and it's about the impossibility of perfecting one human trait and one trait alone. And it's so much more, and the movie just scratches the surface. This might sound like I didn't like the movie, but that's not the case. Villeneuve presents scale beautifully. The huge spherical ship of the Imperial Herald looks amazing in its simplicity. And we finally got a proper design for the ornithopter, Real term for an aircraft flapping its wings, by the way. That alone makes me happy. I also find the casting to be near perfect, but nobody has enough screen time to do anything interesting. I feel Dune is a story made by its minutiae, so the missing bits are like some sand inside your still suit, a constant irritation. It's a great movie that my knowledge of the source material burned to my brain prevents me from enjoying as much as I'd like. Just a wonderfully written review. I found myself disagreeing and then agreeing and then but then disagreeing and then realizing that I actually didn't disagree and agreed. Just fascinating, beautifully written uh, review. Like I said, uh, uh, I, I had I didn't realize or had forgotten that ornithopter was a real term. And I do feel like that. I remember that now because I believe um, uh, Da Vinci had an ornithopter or uh, plans for an ornithopter at one point or something like that. Um, But yeah, just, yeah, I, I, uh, I agree very, very much with that review. What was our final tally? It was the movie. Woo. 12 votes to the book's 10. Ooh, very close. With four voters who couldn't decide. Very, very very close. All right. That's it for our Dune fan poll follow-up. Now we're going to learn a little bit about young adult romance. No matter what anybody tells you, 
Words and ideas can change the world. Young adult romance is a genre of books written for teenagers, often geared towards female readers. Uh, as defined by Romance Writers of America, a romance novel consists of a central love story and an emotionally satisfying ending. Um, so we could consider YA romance kind of a, a sub-genre of romance in general. Because okay. um, young adult is more of a publishing genre. Right. It's more of a category. Yeah. Um, so I guess you could consider it a sub-genre also of young adult. Um, but it, I see what you're saying, and that young adult is less... <laughs> Because young adult can be literally yeah, it can anything. be literally anything. <laughs> Whereas it, like, it's, it's is a little... publishing genre because a genre is really just a category. But I don't really want to get into the debate on what a genre is. Yeah, yeah. YA is is more it, YA is about the audience. Yes. Uh, romance is about the content of the yes. book, at least to some extent. Yes. Yeah. Um, while the majority of YA romance novels feature straight white female protagonists, more recently. This genre has branched out to include a wider variety of protagonists and plot lines, which we will discuss shortly. Uh, but first, a little bit of history backstory on this genre, because I started researching this and I thought I wasn't going to have anything to say about it. <laughs> and I was going to have to change my topic idea. And then I started looking and I was like, this is actually kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, young adult romances were very popular in the 1950s and the early 1960s that started with the success of 1942's 17th Summer by Maureen Daly, huh. uh, which is a, a novel generally acknowledged as the impetus for romance novels that were specifically written for teenage girls. Uh, young adult romance novels at the time were not referred to as young adult. That's a term that came along much later. Uh, they were called junior novels. Sometimes they were called malt shop novels, which I find adorable. Sitting in the malt shop, drinking a malt. Sitting in the malt shop, malt shop, drinking a malt, reading your romance novel. There you go. Uh, the teen romance novels of this era focused on family and domesticity while emphasizing the importance of heterosexual romance and chaste behavior on dates. Uh, romance was presented as the natural relation between boys and girls. Yep. That's, makes sense. Yeah, 1950s makes sense. Boring shit. <laughs> In the article, Growing Up Real, YA Literature Comes of Age, author K.L. Donaldson described the formula of the era by saying, By the 1950s, certain taboos had been clearly established for the adolescent novels. No early or forced marriages. Agree on one of those things. <laughs> no pregnancy outside marriage. No Actually, I agree on both of those things, to be fair. I'm not a fan of early marriages either, but it's a little different than forced marriages. Yeah. No drugs, alcohol, or smoking. Boo. No profane or obscene language. Boo. No deaths. Meh. Almost no ethnic references. Boo. No school dropouts unless as object lessons. <sighs> no divorce. Boo. No sense of the ambivalent cruelty and compassion of young people. Boo. No alienation of young people from society or boo. family. No sexuality or sensuality. Super boo. What are we doing? It's a romance novel. Sorry, that's... <laughs> minimizing there there's a lot of ways that romance can be evolved that doesn't include sensuality and sexuality but that being said 
boo because it's not <laughs> they weren't thinking about it from that perspective right. they were thinking about it from a very it's uh, a uh, it's a propaganda perspective yes. yeah um which is an issue with the genre that has not necessarily gone away there are still a lot of rules yeah about a publishable young adult romance mm-hmm. um which is why you get the meme of like I couldn't tell where my body ended and theirs began because you're not allowed to actually you're describe sex. You're not allowed to sex. say that your <laughs> piece of your body was inside of their body. Anyway, by the late 1960s, the more realistic problem novel had supplanted young adult romance in popularity, uh, so it kind of fell out of favor for a while. But there was a resurgence of young adult romance in the 1980s with category romances. Hmm. Uh, These were serialized sets of books. Uh, For example, Scholastic Books Wildfire series, Bantam Books Sweet Dreams, Silhouette First Love, which was an imprint of Harlequin, which is a famous romance novel publisher, um, and Sweet Valley High. Mm Mm-hmm. There was some speculation that the teen romance resurgence at this time was related to the growing wave of conservatism on the heels of the presidency of Ronald Reagan. Reagan's so again, there's there's definite propaganda to this. Yes. Yeah. The romance series for teens in the 1980s were modeled closer to adult romances but with quote-unquote more innocent storylines. These books were generally told from the point of view from a 15-, 16-year-old girl who was experiencing love for the first time, and they usually included coming-of-age plot elements. Like their 1950s predecessors, romance was positioned as the key to the heroine's development. Mm -hmm. In September 1981, a coalition... That consisted of the Council on Interracial Books for Children, American Federation of of Teachers, Coalition of Labor Union Women, the Disabled in Action Metropolitan New York, and the Women's Action Alliance Non-Sexist Child Development Project. Some fucking bosses, it sounds like. Um, Issued a joint statement condemning teen romances, (sighs) stating teen romances, one, Teach girls that their primary value is their attractiveness to boys. Two, devalue relationships and encourage competition between girls. Three, discount the possibility of non-romantic friendships between boys and girls. Four, depict middle-class, white, small-town families as the norm. And five, portray adults in stereotypic sex roles. Out here, 1980, this isn't new. We've been doing this for (laughs) decades, 40 years later, saying the same things. Yeah. But that's actually really cool. I I had never heard of any of those groups, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe the American Federation of Teachers, I guess. But that's, yeah, Uh, I'm on board with all of those talking points. You know, I think it's an interesting kind of conundrum because... There's a lot of devaluation of the romance genre in general because it's a thing that women like. And it is interesting because when you have romance that is geared towards young people, it can very easily foray into, like we've said, propaganda. Oh, yeah, absolutely. For sure. 
And, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with a grown-ass person reading romance because it's what they enjoy. Yeah. But it is it is an interesting conundrum when this type of story is geared towards people who are still developing. And especially, like, still developing their sexuality and how yeah. they feel about sex and romance and especially when it's the only version yes. of that like it's one thing if that you know it, there's fine if that's because that's some people's story some people's yeah. story and their their sexuality or whatever is you know like traditional sort of waiting till marriage having like and that's fine but like if that's the only narrative anybody ever sees that's not fine yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> Uh, during the 1990s and the very early 2000s, the popularity of category romance once again waned. It uh, was overtaken by uh, chick lit and uh, the horror genres mm -hmm. for teens. However, the late 2000s and the 2010s saw a resurgence of the popularity of individual authors over the publisher-driven category romances. Uh, notable authors to come out of this time period include Meg Cabot, Louise Renison, uh, Sarah Dessen, John Green, and Melissa De La Cruz, just to name a very, very few. Mm -hmm. John Green, Fault in Our Stars, right? Yeah. yeah. A young adult romance and young adult lit in general in the 21st century offers a greater variety of protagonists and plot lines than earlier novels did. A modern YA romance is far more likely to feature non-white, non-straight protagonists, although there are definitely more barriers to be broken down. Mm -hmm. um, but you are much more likely to be able to find something that is more compatible with your experience yeah. if your experience is not yeah. having a heterosexual romance yeah. and waiting until marriage. Yeah. You can find it and not only can you find it, it it's it's a lot of, it's a lot more mainstream. Yes. A lot a lot a lot more of those properties are more mainstream than they used to be because you could find those things you know dating back quite a while but it was very hard to find yes. them whereas now it's much it's more much difficult. More, um mm -hmm. and especially with the advent of the internet um, and it's a lot easier to publish your own work yeah. um, and to get like to get access to books with ebooks and all of that. Um, so we have far more options yeah. now than we once did. Mm -hmm. uh, the wider array of characters, settings, and plots has resulted in a number of, I guess we could say sub sub genres within uh, the young adult romance category. Uh, so I just want to run through a few of the most prominent ones. The first being the evangelical oh, romance God. novel, oh, uh, which God. this is uh, books that are published by Christian presses written for a Christian audience. In these books, more of the conflicts are based on family issues with the stable traditional family structure being shown as essential to the character's well-being. So the quote-unquote boyfriend plot takes a little bit more of a backseat as compared to secular romances. Okay, I just had the world's worst idea <laughs> for some patron content. Oh, no. Which is that we read a Christian evangelical YA romance. <laughs> And talk about it. <laughs> Is that a good idea? <laughs> I Patrons, think it might be. Let us know if you're interested in that. 
um, understand that our review will likely not be favorable. No, it w- I can guarantee you it will not be. Uh, I mean, well, let's try to keep an open mind, but I can feel pretty confident that it will not be. But I, uh, wolf, that could be interesting. All right, patrons, let us know if that interests you. Oh, boy. The next subgenre uh, to do a, a turnaround to pull a Yui here, a little bit of a Yui, yeah. is um, the LGBTQ plus genre uh, consisting of teen romance novels that contain LGBTQIA plus 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 themes and characters. Yeah. Uh, some examples that you might recognize include Aristotle and Dante discover the secrets of the universe. What if it's us and Simon versus the homo sapiens agenda, which we have which also we have covered done. on this yeah. show. Very cute movie. Very cute. Uh, the third subgenre is paranormal and dystopian, which consists of teen romance novels that contain settings and themes from sci-fi, fantasy, or horror. So basically YA lit with like a genre lens on it. Your Twilights. Your Twilights, yes. <laughs> These novels, speaking of Twilight, tend to place a great emphasis on virginity Ooh. and equate it with morality and goodness. The heroine seems ordinary to herself, but is revealed by the hero to be extraordinary. The romance is often somehow fated by destiny and leads to eternal love. So, yeah, your Twilights. Your Twilights. And whatnot. And our final subgenre is realistic, which is a romance story that includes elements of the problem novel. Uh, In other words, it also deals with a teen's first confrontation with a social or personal problem, as well as the romance aspect. And obviously this is not an exhaustive list of subgenres, and many of them also overlap. Uh, For example, many LGBTQ romance offerings will also fit into the realistic category. I mean, I was thinking of an example. This isn't literature, but an example that is both uh, realistic and fits into the LGBTQ romance offerings as a TV show would be like sex education. Yeah. Which I think kind of fits into all those categories. Mm -hmm. Uh, So modern YA romance is actually one of my favorite genres to read uh, because I find the predictability of the plots and tropes to be very comforting. It's kind of comfort read territory for me. And I I tend to prefer young adult over adult romance because the romance aspect is often a little less centralized. Yeah. Like it's there, but there are also other things going on that are interesting. Um, So if you have a favorite or a recommendation, I would love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a couple, but no, I will. I, I was just thinking of a couple like sci-fi ones in particular. Uh, Lost Stars, which is a Star mm-hmm. Wars one. Um, I read that. I yeah, read that you when read, you read it. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I'm aware. I didn't say you didn't. <laughs> I was just rec- I wasn't recommending it to you. It was for the listener. <laughs> I asked for recommendations. Sorry. So it's reasonable for um, me to assume that you were recommending uh, to uh, me. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and then uh, more recently, I read, uh, and now I'm blanking on it. Uh, uh, Lemonade, Illuminate. Oh, oh, the Illuminae? Illuminae series. Which Um, was that one that was very, like, pastiche, right? It had, like... Yes, it's a... uh, uh, Like, diary entries. It's an epistle epistolary novel. novel. Epistolary novel. Uh, Well, three novels. It's a trilogy. Um, uh, But it is very... And it's, again, 
in the same way, like you said, that it, it tends to have where the, the romance is less centralized. Yeah. It's, it's very much lots of other things going on. But there are at the core, there is like a romance story uh, of all the books. And, and yeah, that was another one I thought was really interesting. So, yeah. Cool. Uh, like Katie said, if you have your recommendations, uh, shoot them over to yeah. us. Uh, and my favorite <laughs> subgenres are LGBT, uh, realistic, and fantasy. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. It's now time to learn a little bit about our next property, which is a YA romance known as Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. This is Nick. He's a sensitive musician. I'm not going. We have a gig, Nikki. I'm taking a mental health day. Who's bad at relationships. Hey, Tris, it's Nick. You know, I think we both said some things we didn't mean, like when you broke up with me on my B-Day. This is Nora. OK, everybody in. She always plays by the rules. You have to promise me that you won't get drunk tonight. But tonight. Nora, alone again? I came here with someone. Who? She's going to break them. Would you be my boyfriend for five minutes? What? Please just go with it, okay? Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist is a 2006 collaboration novel written by Rachel Cohn and David Levithan. Other works from Rachel Cohn that you might recognize include Gingerbread and Shrimp. Others from David Levithan include Every Day and Will Grayson, Will Grayson, which I believe he actually co-wrote with John Green, if I'm remembering that right. Yeah, it didn't, didn't ring a bell to me. Uh, another novel co-written by these two that you might recognize is Dash and Lily's Book of Dares, which was adapted into a Netflix series in 2020 and then canceled after one season. So I hadn't heard of that either. So I guess it didn't do well. I hadn't heard of it. I have read Dash and Lily's Book of Dares, but I barely remember it. Yeah. Uh, the chapters in this book that are from Nick's perspective are written by Levithan, while the chapters from Nora's perspective are written by Cone. So kind of an interesting way to tackle a co-writing project. Yeah. Like we're, we'll each take on a specific character. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I didn't see this in your movie notes, so I'm going to include it here. Both authors have brief cameos in the 2008 film adaptation. I didn't include it, but I did see that while I was mm -hmm. doing my research. I just didn't include it um, because I thought you might honestly was yeah. part of the reason. Uh, yeah, I, and I, I think I want to say that they might be at Cat's Delicatessen. There's, I think that's from right. my yeah. memory of what I saw. There, I know there's at least one scene that takes place in Cat's Delicatessen, and I feel like I remember reading that that's yeah. where the cameo for them is. Yeah, they're in the wrong. same scene. Yes, they're like sitting. I think they're sitting together at a yeah. table or something, like in the background. Um, of that cameo, Levithan stated, while some people have noticed that Rachel and I are indeed in the background in the Nick and Nora movie, few people have noticed that we also leave the scene in the middle. This required Rachel and I to walk through an increasingly narrow space between the actor's table and the camera. I think I can speak for both my co-author and myself when I say that the only thing going through our minds at that moment was, do not knock anything over, do not, do not, do not knock anything over. If you've ever been on a set of anything where there's a significant amount of lighting and camera equipment. That's all that's going through your head all the time because it's all incredibly expensive. Yeah. <laughs> I get nervous coming in here sometimes with all your lights and cameras. And this, this, there's, There's a nothing. lot of precarious things in here. True, and it all costs almost nothing. <laughs> That's not true, <laughs> but it, but relatively speaking, it costs right, pennies like, yeah, compared, compared to, to uh, on a, an actual film. 
The novel was in part inspired by Dashiell Hammett's detective novel, The Thin Man, although it seems like the only thing they borrowed was the names of the two protagonists, who mm-hmm. are also Nick and Nora in that novel. Okay. I read the the um, synopsis of The Thin Man, and it doesn't sound like they took anything else from it. So There you go. Uh, my final note here, a review from The Bulletin called the novel, quote, a compelling story of the risks and thrills of burgeoning intimacy. <laughs> I misread that <laughs> as a compelling story of the risks and thrills of bourgeoisie intimacy, <laughs> which says a lot about me, but also felt potentially accurate from what I know of this movie. I, mean, I don't for know. One of the characters that's potentially okay. accurate. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, let's learn a little bit more about that bourgeoisie intimacy in our movie facts about Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. Nick, Nora, how do you guys like know each other? We're the same dentist. Yeah, he's good. I gotta get my friend home. We'll take the drunk mess home. Woo! You two go have fun. If you touch one hair in her head, I will kill all of you. Nora, I'm being Oh, she'll be okay. You're off duty. Not a cab, my friend, I promise you. Yeah. I'm not a cab. I'm not a cab. I love you so much, it's retarded. <laughs> okay, last stop. What do I owe you? 8.50. Charge a little extra for the cleanup. <laughs> Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist is a 2008 film directed by Peter Soleil, uh, also known for directing Raising Victor Vargas, Freeheld, Five Feet High and Rising, and is slated to direct the Minecraft movie. I was wondering why you had Minecraft question mark. Uh, it's in pre-production, and uh, so it could... That's it could one of those change. ones where, yeah. like, who knows? Yeah. Like, I don't know how far into pre-production they are. But he is currently credited as the director of Minecraft in pre-production. So uh, the film was written by Loreen Scafaria, uh, known for writing Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, The Meddler, and most recently, Hustlers. The film stars Kat Dennings, Michael Sarah, Alexis Dezina, Ari, uh, Ari Grainer, Aaron Yu, and Jay Baruchel. It has a 74% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, a 64 on Metacritic, and a 6.6 out of 10 on IMDb. It made $33.5 million against a budget of $10 million, so fairly successful. Uh, producer Carrie Kohansky, uh, sorry, producer Carrie Kohansky Roberts bought the rights for the film in 2003, and Scafaria was hired in 2005 to adapt the novel. Uh, her first, and it was her first uh, adaptation and major motion picture. Uh, Scafaria said that Nora, quote, was me on the page, while Soleil, the director, said that, quote, he was not dissimilar to Nick. So apparently our writer and director uh, felt saw themselves in our main characters. Uh, Michael Sarah and Kat Dennings actually at one point recorded voiceover narration to mimic the first-person perspective that is in the novel, but those voiceovers were eventually cut from the final film. Hmm. So... There you go. So that's that'll be interesting to see how we feel about that yeah. as we watch the movie. Yeah, Would for it sure. have benefited from that or did they make the right call? We shall see. 
Uh, Principal photography ran from October to December of 2007 and was shot primarily on location in New York City. Uh, Some well-known spots from the movie uh, include Katz's Delicatessen, as I mentioned earlier, the Mercury Lounge, Arlen's Grocery, Penn Station, the Port Authority Bus Terminal, the Selka Restaurant, and Don Hill's Bar. During the course of filming, the actors apparently slept during the day. They would wake up in the afternoon, do their makeup, and then film from dusk until dawn because it seems from that it's all set at night. It takes the whole thing takes place over the course of one night. That makes sense. The film received positive or the film received generally positive reviews uh, from Claudia Puig of US Today, uh, USA Today. She gave the film 3.5 out of four stars, saying, quote, Denning's on screen presence, or sorry, praising, quote, uh, (laughs) praising Denning's on screen presence and, quote, the considerable chemistry between both her and Michael Sarah. And the excellent soundtrack. New York Times critic A.O. Scott described Nick and Nora's Infinite playlist as, quote, a shy, sweet romance that surveys the varieties of teenage experience with tolerant sympathy, which is a very. That's a, that's a thing. Very <laughs> critic sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, James Berardinelli of Real Views reviewed the film uh, warmly, giving it three out of four stars, uh, complimenting the soundtrack and the witty dialogue, uh, and that saying that the film had appeal for both teenagers and adults. Michael Ordona for the LA Times wrote that the film was familiar, but, quote, fleshed out with atmosphere, a nice blend of broad goofiness and sophistication and two appealing leads who bring it to life. And Entertainment Weekly's Lisa, Lisa Schwartzbaum graded the film an A minus, giving particular commendation to a nonchalant portrayal of gay teenagers and Nora's Jewish identity. Mm-hmm. So representation. Finally, as always, I have to include Roger Ebert and his review. <laughs> this old curmudgeon from the Chicago Sun Times. He wrote, "Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist doesn't bring much to the party. It's not much of a film." But it sort of gets you halfway there like a Yugo, which is a car that uh, Nick drives yes. in the film. So there you go. <laughs> Roger Ebert's very begrudging review <laughs> of Nick and Nora's I'm Infinite I'm sure playlist. he loved watching this film. I'm sure yes. he loved it. Yes, absolutely. Katie, where can people watch this film? Well, as always, you can check with your local library. Or if you still have a local video rental store uh, out there kicking. R.I.P. You can check Ours was replaced by a freaking dispensary. Yes. <laughs> Our family video closed a while yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, and something finally moved in and it is, it is a dispensary. I mean, I'm not mad about it, but <laughs> I am a little mad about it. Uh, you can also uh, stream this movie free with ads on Tubi, or you can rent it for around 3 to $4 through Amazon, Vudu, Google Play, YouTube, AMC Theaters On Demand, the Microsoft Store, Redbox, and DirecTV. There you go. So many places to watch Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. I'm actually very excited for this. I quite enjoy every now and then. It's not my favorite thing that I want to watch all the time, but every now and again, I do really enjoy a nice coming-of-age mm-hmm. romance movie kind of thing. I, I, I quite quite enjoy them. I think they're fun. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I'm a big fan of Cat Dennings. I think Michael Sarah works in very particular roles that Michael Sarah can play well. I have thoughts on Michael Sarah. When Michael Sarah we'll get to is in playing the Michael Sarah, I'm into it. When he's playing, I'm into it. That's in this- all he does, though. Yes, that is all he does. 
To be fair, Kat Dennings kind of only plays Kat Dennings. Yeah, and I does. love Kat Dennings, but and, and maybe that's why it's fine, because <laughs> she's great. But and I love her. And if you're listening, I love you. Please hello. But also, she kind of just plays Kat Dennings and everything. Uh, and so I, I think they're both kind of playing them, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to say, I don't know if they're playing themselves, but they're playing the kind of character. My guess would be that they're playing the kind of characters that they always tend to play, um, which is who they play. Anyways, uh, I like I said, I'm very looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fun. Um, and so, yeah, we'll be talking about it in one week's time. Until that time, guys, gals, non-binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.